You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Okay, we are taking a break from the book of Acts to go into the Psalms today. Um, We do that because we want to get a steady diet of both Old Testament and New Testament. And we're going to read Psalm 52 today as a way to prepare ourselves spiritually to come to the Lord's table. Uh, Psalm 52, or behind Psalm 52, is a um, horrific event recorded in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21. David, not yet king, uh, was on the run from King Saul, who was trying to kill him. Uh, he goes to a city north of Jerusalem called Nov, uh, where there is a priest named Ahimelech, and he uh, David goes to Ahimelech, asks for food and weapons. Ahimelech gives those uh, things to him, not knowing that David uh, is an enemy of the king, thinking he's an ally of the king. Um, a man named Doeg, an Edomite, happened to be there. He witnessed this exchange between David and Ahimelech. He was Saul's chief Herdsman, uh, later, at a moment when it made m- the most sense for Doeg, when it was in his best interest, he let Saul know uh, that David had been to Nov, had seen Ahimelech, Ahimelech had received, uh, had given David some help. Uh, Saul, in his paranoid rage, uh, ordered the execution of Ahimelech. And not just the Himalek, but all the other priests in Nov. Uh, his soldiers could, were so horrified they couldn't carry out the orders. They refused to carry out the orders. Uh, but Doeg, uh, the Edomite, gladly obliged. Uh, and he murdered 85 unarmed priests, uh, along with their wives and their children. Uh, that's what's behind Psalm 52. And Psalm 52 is David's reflection uh, on, on this kind of evil. So if you would open your Bibles or your bulletins to Psalm 52, and if you're able to please stand uh, as I read God's Word. Psalm 52, to the choir master, a maskill of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. 
This is God's Word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Has to be one of the most inaccurate proverbs in history. Uh, the Jewish uh, uh, wisdom book of uh, Sirach has the exact opposite and much more accurate proverb. Uh, goes like this: the blow of a whip raises a welt, but a blow of the tongue crushes the bones. It's good, isn't it? Um, We all know what what David knows here, like David says here, that words hurt, words cut like razors. Uh, Words also incite evil, evil actions. I mean, think in our own short history of uh, January 6th, for example. Some of you have been ridiculed and lied about online. Some of you have had colleagues tell lies about you behind your back at work to advance their own positions. Some of you are still struggling with memories of what uh, someone said about you in the past that uh, still hurts. And as words do give rise to action, some of you uh, I know have been bullied, physically bullied, physically abused by Uh, people who have also hurt you with their words. And of course, on the world stage, we are watching, among other things, the innocent people of Ukraine suffering and dying at the hand of a lying despot uh, who uh, doesn't much care who he hurts, who he kills, as long as he gets his way. Things haven't changed much, have they? Um, So how do you process all of this? How do you you deal with evil and suffering? Well, Psalm 52, it seems to me, may may as well have been written yesterday because it is so relevant to how, uh, to one, your experience, how you, like David, get, get hurt or worse by the evil of other people, uh, and how you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, how you as a Christian should respond. We're going to look at three points today uh, as we prepare to come to the table. First, the problem. Second, the solution. And third, the response. Okay, the problem, the solution, and the response. So first, the problem. The problem is humanity's ongoing evil, right? Verse 1, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Uh, I'm sure there's some irony in that, O mighty man. Uh, A killer of unarmed people and women and children is hardly a mighty man. But he boasts of evil. And that word, that Hebrew word translated boasting there doesn't mean just bragging. It, it, It communicates a kind of smugness. A, a, a kind of self-satisfaction in beating someone, right? getting over on someone by devious means. Right? Now, 
this psalm shows us that there are two root sins, two deeply rooted sins in human beings that lead to this sort of uh, ongoing evil. And the first root sin is what uh, uh, Tim Keller has called disordered love. Disordered love. You look at verses 3 and 4 here, uh, the evil person loves things that shouldn't be loved, right? That, there's, there's, a, there's a disorder to that person's love. Now, and love isn't just being attracted to something, it's choosing it. An evil person is attracted to and it will in fact choose accruing power at the expense of others. Preferably at the expense of others. Through whatever means uh, he, he can get away with, including deceit and lying. But before you too quickly judge that person you're thinking about right now, right? we all have someone in mind, I know who he's talking about, uh, ask yourself, what do I fantasize about? You know, where do my daydreams go? As I'm daydreaming about my life and my success, are are you daydreaming about success, um, but success even better at the expense of that person who has hurt you? Right? are you, are you daydreaming about being honored and recognized? But part of that daydream, the, the, the delicious part of that daydream, isn't so much the honor and recognition you're receiving. It's the fact that it's, that honor and recognition is being stripped away from those people over there. You know, we can go there pretty easily, can't we? Our own, our own hearts are prone to this kind of disordered love. The other root sin is misplaced trust. So our loves are disordered, but so is our trust. We, we place our trust in the wrong thing. The evil person is the person who chooses not to trust in God. That's the first part of verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge. But if a person refuses to trust God, it doesn't mean he's not, ref- he's not trusting in, uh, in, in nothing, right? Uh, we will always trust in something outside of ourselves. It's just the way we're wired. So if you refuse to trust God, what do you trust in? Well, according to Psalm 52, second part of verse 7 there, uh, diagnosing the evil person here. He says he trusted in the, in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Now, these psalms are poetry, right? This is Hebrew poetry. And one of the features of Hebrew poetry is that you often will get two phrases that say the same thing in different ways. And, and that's what we've got here. Uh, he, he, You've got trusted in the abundance of his riches is the same thing as sought refuge in his own destruction. It's saying the same thing in a different way. So trusted 
is parallel with sought refuge, right? See that? And, and abundance of his riches is parallel to what? His own destruction. Now, that's interesting. And that, that's very telling. That's illuminating, right? What, what, what David is communicating here is that if you are a person who chooses to trust in the abundance of riches, whether that's your money or your skills, your smarts, your education degrees, your friends, your contacts, you will eventually destroy yourself. Evil people self-destruct. That's what they do. They're like wind-up toys who have declared independence from their winder. You know, that'll go okay for a while. Uh, but you eventually wind down. You end up going ultimately nowhere. So that's the problem. Right? Humanity's ongoing evil. We have people with disordered love and misplaced trust. Right? Sinning in loving what is evil. Sinning in not trusting in the Lord. So what's the solution? What's... That's our second point. What's the solution? And the solution, the ultimate solution, is God's coming judgment. God's coming judgment. Right? Two points about God's coming judgment here that we should learn from Psalm 52. Um, First, God's judgment... This is counterintuitive. God's judgment is actually part of His faithful love. Right? Psalm 52 is a lot about the, the, the steadfast love of God. Right? What, what uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones calls, and some of you kids will recognize this phrase, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. That may be one of the best definitions of of God's steadfast love ever. It's from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And you see, you see this psalm is bookended by the steadfast love of God. You see it at the beginning, verse 1, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. You see it at, at the, near the end, verse 8, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. So we've got... You know, bookends of the steadfast love, but then right in the middle of these bookends, right at the, 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 uh, the center of the psalm, verse 5, you have this promise of God's future coming judgment. Now some of you are perhaps thinking, well, that's, that seems inconsistent, right? How can, how can judgment and love be uh, compatible. Those, those things are incompatible. Right? How can a loving God be a judging God? I have friends that say, will, will, will say that. I believe in God. My God's a loving God. He doesn't, he's not a judging God. Now if you're thinking that, if you, if you think, or if you're asking yourself, how can a loving God be a judging God, my reply to you is, unless God is a judging God, He is not a loving God. Listen, a love that refuses to take on evil, a love that refuses to call evil what it is, a love that refuses to judge evil, 
the evil that is hurting and killing the people he loves is no love at all. It's mere sentimental talk. It's fuzzy, warm, fuzzy feelings. God's judgment, God's ultimate judgment is driven by His fierce love for His people. He loves His people. He's protecting His people. He's ensuring that for His people all things will be set right. See, love and judgment must go together. The second thing we learn about God's future judgment here is that it's, it's scarily total. Right? The, the, verse 5, you got this piling up of these verbs of destruction, right? God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. What David is poetically and powerfully communicating here is that God's love is a complete and final, I mean, God's judgment is a complete and final eradication uh, of all evil. That's the promise of of the future judgment, that evil will be uh, dealt with, it will be answered, all things will be set right. And as much as we sort of push back, especially today, against the whole concept of judgment, that it's, you know, a lot of people think it's quaint to bring it up, or, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're out of step to even talk about it. We instinctively know that judgment of, of evil is good and it's right. We, we know it. And not only do we know it down deep, we feel it. That's, that's how you just know it's true. It's true. We, we, we feel a kind of satisfaction when judgment comes on those who ruin others for their own gain. Right? We know that's right and we feel it's right. That's why the Alex Murdaugh double murder trial has, has, gotten, has been so closely fi- uh, followed in this country and why the guilty verdict just announced is being so universally cheered by everybody. Conservatives, liberals, why? Because they know it's right and it feels right. But not everybody gets the satisfaction, do they? Of, of seeing the guilty receive justice now. There are victims in this room of, of evil, of sin. Uh, and uh, for, for all intents and purposes, it seems like the perpetrators of the evil done to you, the sin perpetrated on you, uh, has been gotten away with. Right? They got away with it. But the message of Psalm 52 is that nobody escapes the judgment of God. No evil uh, escapes uh, God. It will, there will be an ultimate reckoning. It will be set right. I like the re, what uh, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators is a, a fellow named Alec Mateer. And um, he, he writes brilliantly on the Psalms and on Isaiah. And he's always very realistic. And he, and he sort of summarized the lesson of Psalm 52 in terms of, you know, Christians 
suffering and facing human evil. Uh, and, and he says, here's, here's, here's what his, his sort of summary is. That human evil you're dealing with, Christian, number one, will not last. It may end soon. It may not. It may continue longer than you wish, but for its end is written. Right. The end of injustice, the end of evil, the end uh, of sin is, is written. It's ordained. There will be soul-satisfying justice. That's the good news of the coming judgment. And the solution to the ongoing human evil. So then the third and final point is, well, how, then how do we respond? So if the problem is humanity's ongoing evil, and the ultimate solution, it's, which is in the future yet, is, is God's coming judgment, what do we do in the meantime? How do we respond to these truths? And the response is the believer's waiting faith. Your waiting faith, Christian. How do, you, how do we respond to human evil now, God's judgment in the future, answer the way of faith? And what does that faith in God look like in the face of human evil? Well, it looks like three things. And David explains, David maps it out here in verses 8 and 9. First, it looks like persistent trusting in God even when you are suffering, even when you are facing evil that has not been yet judged. You keep on trusting in God's steadfast love. I mean, we've talked about this so much, right? Uh, the, the fact that you are suffering, believer, as a result of human evil, does not mean that God's love for you has stopped. Right? God's love for you goes on. It, it doesn't stop, right? That's the point here of God's steadfast love. It keeps going, it keeps going. And what David is saying here is that part of faith is trusting that ongoing love of God even when you're suffering, even when you're facing uh, evil. Second, it looks like thanking God, praising God. Uh, that Hebrew word is translated both in both ways, thanking, praising. Um, not for the evil, not for the suffering, but for what? Because for, for the fact that God has acted, you have done it, David says. Now I'll get back to that in a sec. He's acted in history. And then third, the third thing it looks like, faith looks like, in the face of suffering, and we always get here, it's the part I least like about faith, is waiting. Right? Waiting. Uh, patient waiting for God to, in His time, vindicate His name to ensure that justice is done, to right every wrong. We just have to wait for that. But the encouragement here, and David is encouraged by it, is, and is, David recognizes that he's not waiting alone. And you don't wait alone. Right. David says that he was waiting in the presence of the godly. 
And that's, that's the congregation. Those are his brothers and sisters in the faith. The fact is, friends, you and I, we are waiting together. That's why we're together. That's one reason why we come together. We come together to encourage each other, to keep trusting, to keep praising, to keep waiting. Because God is faithful. And it will work out. You know, and if you do these things, if you follow this way of faith, believer, Psalm 52 says that um, instead of being like an uprooted tree, which is how he described the evil person, and you think about an uprooted tree, seen a lot of them in the storms lately, the wind and the rain, uh, you know, an uprooted tree will look, aside from its weird angle, will look green and healthy for quite a while, right? But again, its, it's, it's, uh, its end is certain. It is winding down. It is self-destructing. An uprooted tree is, is dying. Uh, but instead of being an uprooted tree, what does he say? You will be like a green olive tree, right? Planted in the house of God. That's a rich image for in Israel, and the the olive tree is is so important to to to, uh, to, to its uh, the culture and the business of of Israel. Um, uh, they also live a long time. Olive trees. If you've been, if you've been to the Holy Land, you'll go to the the Garden of Gethsemane, and there are. There are olive trees there that certainly were there when Jesus was there. Uh, I mean, they're that old. Um, but you will, you will be like that olive tree, which means no matter how much suffering you're doing, no matter how much evil you're facing, your life will be... Think about what a green olive tree is. Fruitful. Valuable. Practical, versatile, significant, life-enhancing, life-sustaining. That will be you, Christian, as you follow the way of faith in the face of human evil. Let me close with this. Look, if David could do this in the face of the evil he faced, uh, you can do it all the more, can't you? We can. When David said in verse 9, God, you have done it. I'm going to thank you. I'm going to praise you because you have done it. What David was undoubtedly doing there was looking back to times in Israel's history when God intervened to save his people, to, to redress evil. You know, time like the Exodus, when God intervened to save the people of Israel from from slavery in Egypt and when he judged the evil of Egypt. Now we do the same thing, but unlike David, we have the privilege of looking back to something that David that was still future for David, right? We look back to something much greater than David saw. We look back to God's definitive inbreaking uh, into history. Everything in the Bible leads up to this definitive inbreaking of God into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And the remarkable thing about the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah, is that so everybody was expecting him to come like one who would wield the judgment that's, that's talked about here in Psalm 52. Everybody expected when Messiah comes, he will, he will judge the world. But when Jesus came the first time, he didn't come to judge, he came to what? Be judged. It was, it was the staggering truth that everybody struggled to get their heads around. How can a Messiah come to be judged? He's supposed to be the judge. But that's what He did. He came to be judged. Jesus took on Himself your evil. He took on Himself the evil that has been done to you. And He died to satisfy God's judgment for it. That's what He was doing on the cross. So friends, that finally means two things. First, for believers, for believers in Jesus, it means that on Jesus' second coming, when He returns, He's going to return this, that time, the future coming judgment, as the judge, right? As we say in the Apostles' Creed, He will come to judge the living and the dead. The second coming is all about judgment. That final judgment, Christian, holds no fear for you. None. Because Jesus already took that judgment for you. He has, in David's words, done it. God will not engage in double jeopardy. He will not judge and punish the same sins twice. You have been vindicated. You have been pronounced not guilty. That's what this table celebrates. Amen. The second thing this means is for the, for those of you who in David's words here have not made God your refuge right you have up to this point resisted trusting in God instead trusting in the abundance of whatever it is you're trusting in you've not trusted in in Jesus Christ his life death and resurrection for you then what this means It really is a sober warning that the coming judgment that we've been talking about is all the more certain for you. If you keep on put, you know, resisting. Uh, But I I want to stress this. This is a sober warning, but it is cloaked in in the amazing love of God. When, just think for a moment, right? What Jesus did, what God did to save you from His coming judgment. He sent His Son, His infinite, eternal, beloved Son, right? Out of glory and, and, and packaged Him in, in a human being, right? He's a, he's a human being. He's fully God. He's fully man. And, and, and then he, 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 he lives a perfectly holy human life. Tempted every way we are, but never sinning. Living the life we're supposed to live, but don't. And, and then he dies, you know, a tortured death to pay for your sins. To cover your sin, cover your shame, cover your guilt. And then he was three days later, 
raised from the dead to guarantee that if you tr- are trusting in Him, that you'll be raised from the dead, that you will know eternal life with God, abundant life with God. He did all of that. So how, how are you going to stand in the ju- final judgment if you've neglected that much love? That great a salvation? It's, it is, it's not a love you can turn your back on easily. It's a costly love. It costs Jesus everything. For you. So my message to you is don't neglect it. When the bread and the wine are passed around in a couple of minutes, uh, if you're not trusting in Jesus, don't take it. Right? The, the, the sacrament is not to be eaten in unbelief. And I don't want to, and we aren't forcing you here to do anything against your conscience. But, take Jesus. Don't take the bread and the wine. Take Jesus. Use the communion time to pray. Confess your sins to Him. Trust in His love. Trust in His forgiveness. Declare Him to be your Savior and Lord. And if you do that during this communion, please come talk to me. Drop me an email. Call the office. I would love to talk with you and pray with you and for you. Um, God is good. Humans are evil. God is good. Uh, And uh, and He's going to see us through. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, we're going to come to this table now. Thank you for, for instituting this, this meal, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would use it to convict us, all of us, of our own sins. All of us, yeah, convicting us, even us believers of our, of our um, disordered love and our misplaced trust. We, can, we do that, Lord, and we ask you to expose that and convict us of it so that we might repent and return to uh, you, trust in you, love of you. Um, and uh, encourage us in our faith that we might be, uh, that we might patiently wait and persistently trust and, and be eternally grateful. Uh, for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.